This is an ABC podcast. Sometimes I feel that we don't say yes because we think we're not at that level. But the thing is, you have to say yes so you can scale to that level. And that's what I want more Papua New Guinean women to have is just, you know, believe in themselves, put up your hand, say yes, and then pedal like crazy underneath the water to get to where you need to get to. Susan Nelson Kongoi has been pedaling like crazy all life. She's the eldest of 11 children, but that leadership put her in good stead to become a leader in the corporate world as well. You met Susan recently in our episode about women CEOs in Papua New Guinea, but there was so much more from our conversation that we didn't get to share then. And I want to share it with you now. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk to CEO Susan Nelson Kongoi. So I grew up, my early formative years were actually in the village in Yanguru. I think the first eight years of my life was in the village. And then when my dad progressively, you know, climbed the corporate ladder, then we moved to Moresby. And then caught Moresby briefly. And then he actually, both him and my mom got a scholarship. And so we moved to New Zealand. So the next sort of three or four years was in New Zealand, um, going to primary school there. And then when they finished studying and came back, it meant that my dad got a promotion up the corporate ladder. So I ended up coming back and going to school at St. Joseph's International with my uh, rest of my sisters. And then I went for one year of high school at Port Moresby, Palm High. And then um, my father decided to ship me and my younger sister, Beverly, off to boarding school. So that's where we ended up at boarding school. And then from there, I went to university in Australia, in Brisbane, came back, worked for a few years. And then I got a scholarship to New Zealand. So I ended up going there for further studies and then back to PNG to work. And your sister, Beverly, went to uni with myself. And uh, it's a great connection. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so she would have... Yeah, so when we came back to Moresby, then she went on to UPNG, yeah. Yeah, UP. And I got a scholarship down south. Yeah. Fantastic. And so you're the eldest daughter. What role did you play or did you have in, in your family? Quite a large role. So I am the oldest child in the family and I have 11 siblings, including myself. So when I was growing up, I worked. So I actually work to fund my younger siblings to go to school. And it's not uncommon in many Papua New Guinean big families where the older child tends to work. So actually, my sister Bev was the first female graduate in our area of Yanguru Salsia, the first female graduate from that area, only because I worked to support the rest of my younger siblings to go to school. That's amazing. So, and I, yeah, so it's a role I still play today. I mean, I'm still, you know, helping them whether to get a house or, you know, to be a referee for them for various <laughs> jobs. <laughs> it's a role that you it's never get rid a lifetime. It's a deal you do it. And your your parents tend to say, okay, well, you know, when they call family meetings, it's like you call the family meeting because everyone will listen to you. Like that's. <laughs> So I'm known in my family as um, that everyone calls me leader. That's wonderful. I mean, that's that's really great. Yeah. 
And your father was the chief. Uh, what did you learn from him about leadership? Yeah, my dad was a man, I think, ahead of his times. He was a trailblazer himself um, from his area. He was the first person uh, from his village and certainly from his clan and tribe to go to university, complete school, and then excel into, you know, uh, being holding major positions for corporate sector as well as the public sector. So he believed in education. It's something that he's instilled in all of us and that education can open doors for you. And because there's seven of us, he has seven daughters and then he has four male child and the four brothers come at the tail end. And they're the ones that, of course, you know, the leadership goes to. He was a paramount chief. And he passed away two years ago. So my brothers step into that role. But because four girls come before the brothers, two of the brothers, the knowledge that's been passed on from my father has been given to me as an orator, as a keeper, to also pass that on to my brothers or act as a a soundboard. So very much us four girls that come before He's sort of downloaded things to us so that when my brothers have now stepped into this role, we become a sounding board for them about, you know, so whenever they want to make a decision, it's, okay, we need to get together and discuss it. And that's what I think has worked well in my family is that my brothers always are in consultation with us or brief us or call family meetings so that we are all aligned and we present ourselves as a unit. You mentioned your dad is from Yanguru. Is your mom from there as well? And how were they able to, in terms of their education, how did that start for them? Yeah, so both my parents were um, children of policemen. So policemen at the time were sort of um, the first to be educated and sent out. So they were privileged in that sense. My father came from a chieftain clan and my mother too is from a chieftain clan. And she is the oldest child in her family. So similar to my situation, everyone looks to her for guidance. So it's sort of, she's also a a role model in that sense. And I can see it playing out in my own life that even to this day, her younger siblings still, you know, look for her to be present at family meetings, etc. My grandmother passed away last year. And even though her that's her mom, she passed away at the age of 98. It was really funny because when we went to the hospital to get the medical certificate, the guy couldn't believe it. He said, wow, she died of old age. We don't get many people that die of old age. But what I wanted to get to is that she also plays that leadership role within her family and her brothers as well. So when I reflect back, I think maybe some of that is I got it like osmosis from her because she's been doing it all her life and we've been around that. So she comes from a chieftain clan. Dad also comes from a chieftain clan. The story is really interesting. Um, She was going to school in Mapri because her dad was a policeman based there. She had to pass through his village to get to Wewak. And she was on the back of a truck. And my mother is was a beautiful, tall, light-skinned, coastal woman. So that's where Bev gets her fairness from. Yeah. yeah. So when my dad saw it, he's like, oh, I need to, 
I'd probably end up marrying this woman. And he did exactly that. They met <laughs> up again. She went to Yarrowfast to a Catholic girls' school. She's from the coast. Dad's from inland Sipic mm-hmm. and she's from West Coast. What they call it Coconut Highway. You'll hear lots <laughs> of songs about Coconut Highway. That's where she's from. Amazing. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. mentioned your, you know, broad education and just being privileged or blessed to come abroad for your education, which many don't, many of us don't have that privilege, but because, you know, your dad climbed up the ladder and saw that the opportunity to come away from home to get an education, uh, that really kind of shaped you. What did you decide to do with your own education? I started out, you know, because my dad's an economist, so very much in that field, but then economics was okay, didn't really enjoy it as much, so I ended up doing accounting. So I'm actually an accounting major by profession. When I actually ended up, you know, like applying for jobs, it's really hard for during my time to come back into PNG and get a job because at at that time there was some atmosphere around, you know, kids who were educated overseas and coming back and trying to assimilate back into the system. Actually, I when I was still at university in New Zealand, I actually knew that there wasn't opportunities available. So I actually wrote ahead and asked if I could do volunteer work. And that's how I came back and got into the formal education as I started off doing volunteer work with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then when I did that, they saw that I was actually really good at what I did. So they decided to pay me a, a stipend wait for it, 250 kina a fortnight. But, you know, when you're on a student, when you're working student, you know, that's really big bucks. So back then, and, you know, the value of the key is much better than science. But you, you definitely looked at the, you know, bigger picture and the future. So you got just got your foot in yes. there. Yes. And that's, you know, like something that I do today, you know, with my younger nieces and certainly my younger brothers and sisters coming up is, you know, to look for opportunities because everyone is vying for the same opportunity for the same job. So you've got to think a little bit outside the box on how you create an opportunity for yourself to be, you know, economically better than, you know, your current position. Um, Don't think that there's never an opportunity to get to the end game where you want to go. It's just about you being creative and putting your mind to it because, I'm a believer that, you know, when you dream it, you dream it into existence. It manifests itself, the universe aligns. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. I'm speaking to Susie Nelson Kongoi, the CEO of Papua New Guinea's Institute of Banking and Business Management. Susie has many years of experience in the corporate sector. At 26, she was the youngest executive manager in her company. Then she became a senior executive at ExxonMobil, where she was the only woman working in PNG's oil and gas industry. But being the first or the youngest also means it can be harder to be taken seriously. I always found that I had to be better prepared than, you know, like, uh, for example, my male counterparts. I found that I set up, you know, like, the night before, reading everything that I had to read to the wee hours, right down to the type of questions, brainstorming the type of questions that I would ask as an auditor. Um, Because a lot of the times when I went in, I was young and I had to interview like CFOs or FCs. 
So to me, I felt that, you know, they wouldn't believe me because I was so young. I was always having to prove that, you know, I knew just as much as my counterpart sitting next to me. And and that's one of the reasons I think I went away and did my MBA because I felt that for women, for opportunities in Papua New Guinea, you just had to have some substance behind you. So if you had, you know, a master's or a PhD, then it created an opportunity and space for you to, you know, play at the level that the men were currently playing at as well to get to advance in your career. I was the youngest um, executive manager in one of the companies that I worked for, and I got poached to work for this um, particular company. I got asked to move over, and we we have every quarter we have our meetings in Singapore. So I was given the task, and I was the most electronically advanced. So I sat on a board of very an older people, so I had to arrange the meetings in Singapore. And the first hotel that we went to, they were still using fax machines. And you had to print. And I thought, oh, that won't do. So I walked around the streets of Singapore and I came to this hotel and I went in and I asked them, you know, do you have this? Can I have a look at your meeting rooms? And a lot of that I did, you know, by myself. You know, you have to develop, you know, courage and be bold about it. And I got the information. I came back and I said to my colleagues, my counterparts, even though I was the youngest, we need to move to this hotel and this is why, because then we can email the board. Like I had to give examples of why it was advantageous for us to go to this hotel. And then the next argument was we all needed like credit cards to be able to pay because the world was moving at a pace that we were still behind at that time. So organized all that. And then you get on a plane and somebody asks you, are you the secretary? Because you're sitting in business class and you're the youngest member And oh my gosh, the amount of times that I was, you know, blessed to be in that position, to be able to travel business class and get that question, are you the secretary or, you know, people treating you less because they think you'll wait for it, someone's wife that you're sitting next to that you have no idea who they are. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it's, it's incredible. Incredible, honestly. How does it feel when you have to kind of deal with such situations or to say that to them? I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So it's like, okay, they don't know who I am. And it's really a lesson in like humility. Like, Take that title with you. So it's about your interaction with people. So I really try to be, you know, understanding and my response to people like that and think that that's their sort of worldview and not mine. Absolutely. And you were a senior executive at ExxonMobil. What was it like being the only uh, woman in, you know, PNG's oil and gas industry? I was working at the time for a company in PNG that had been around for a hundred years and it was a family owned business. And they were about ticking the box, I think. I mean, you know, and making sure that they had um, representation of females at senior management role. And when I got asked to go and head up the national content portfolio, it really interested me because not only was I localizing the position because I was creating career pathways for other Papua New Guineans to move into it, but it was around, you know, um, developing workforce to get more. Papua New Guineans into the workforce and to move into senior leadership roles. And when I went into the 
from Exxon, they put me in a glass office and I didn't realize because I was already sitting in a glass office. So when I went into Exxon and they put me in a glass office, I thought that was normal, that I was, that I had an office. And then I had, you know, one of my um, cousins worked in Exxon as well. And he came over to me and he said to me, do you realize that you're the only Papua New Guinean sitting in one of these offices? And I was like, oh, no, not really. I thought it was more like, you know, that I'm qualified to sit in this office. <laughs> it was interesting. And um, and then I realized, okay, then I'm the most senior Papua New Guinean that was in that position if I was sitting like a door away from the CEO. To me, it's just about performing your role, doing the best that you can at what you, you've been given. I spent three years in that role and then they moved me again into a different role, public policy and issues management. And that was another role that I localized as well. I created pathways for Papua New Guineans to move in there. And that talked about, it was all about advocating for policies that were kind to ExxonMobil to further their engagement in PNG. But it got me to learn about how deficient PNG was in terms of um, looking at enabling policies. As well as the community engagement role at ExxonMobil, Susil was also vice president of the Business Council of PNG and involved with APEC 2018. It put me in good stead to actually participate at the national level on discussions around development of PNG and being a nation builder because that's what I saw myself as in my space. And certainly like for you too, Hilda, the type of messages that you're interviewing me and other like-minded people that's helping to Papua New Guineans like develop their thought processes on what more is it that they can do so that we become a better country. And I try to do that in the spaces that I'm involved in. So certainly around the public policy, I became involved with uh, APEC public policy on women, economic women's empowerment around the APEC space and talking about enabling policies because private sector was already doing it, but it just didn't match to government policies or how we could do that. Um, one of the current roles I sit on is called the PNG Business Advocacy Network, and it's really a coalition of women's organizations that advocate on business reforms and policies to enable more women to create wealth, economic wealth, and as well as looking at, you know, um, services for people with disability women with disability, how can they access services and uh, moving them from informal into formal economy. So these are things that I'm that I discovered while I was at Exxon under the public policy role. And I've taken it away and now I do it outside in community engagements because I have that expertise. And I'm a firm believer of if you're an educated female Papua New Guinea, an educated person, full stop, you have a duty of care to also contribute and ha look at ways to build, you know, the spaces and, you know, places that you're in as well. With Exxon, you, you did a lot of work to ensure money from mining stays in the community. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, so I was involved in the Transparency Extractives Initiative. So how do we make sure that, you know, people from those communities you know, because they're the ones that they ring road, they have a national content policy. So how do we make sure that, you know, um, people who are in those impact areas get into those spaces and places, for example, get to work at Exxon later? 
I belong to another organization, um, an NGO called Business and Professional Women's Association, and their mandate is to provide scholarships for women. And then in 2018, I helped develop a, a scholarships program. We are a local organization that, um, aside from our annual events that we do, we've got very good women that sit on the executive board that I have personally hand-chosen because of how I know their characters. We recently launched a, a scholarship for trades, um, so looking at how we can get more women to support them because a lot of women are already doing crafting and, you know, handcrafts, et cetera, but they need to learn certain techniques to help them scale what they're currently doing. So we launched a scholarship around that. We realized that to get women into more senior leadership position, they need advanced degrees, so PhDs and masters. So we launched a scholarship called the DSN Scholarships. Um, it's named after my father because he's the seven of us women in the Nelson family that are all educated, holding senior management positions. That's me and my sisters. So we named it after my dad, but it's about getting your master's qualification. We're also looking at, we've got to uh, set some funding aside to look at uh, women in the entrepreneurial space to give them grant funding to move them from beyond survival skills to actually growing a business to create wealth for themselves and have proper businesses. So we've got a pool of money aside and we're, we're just looking at how we're going to develop that. So there's no not too many red tape for them to access that fund because through my various works over the years, I've realized that women are firstly disadvantaged because the red tape is too much for them to get that seed funding. That's amazing. Really remarkable, honestly. And you're now the CEO of PNG's Institute of Banking and Business yes. Management. What's that job like? Oh, so I really enjoy the job that I've, you know, I come into. And it was an interesting um, journey to get to this stage because I had at Exxon, you know, and some of the other organizations, that it's very hard once you're like a Papua New Guinean, well, a Papua New Guinean full stop to get, especially if it's a multinational to scale upwards. Um, you feel like you, you, well, I certainly felt like I, I came to a ceiling that I couldn't go any further. I, I, I really like working in an environment where everyone under me is Papua New Guinean and, you know, you're working together as a team. Um, that you're making decisions by Papua New Guinea for Papua New Guinea. And that's what I really like about the role. Mm -hmm. And there's so much potential here to do other things. So one of the things too, like because we run an enterprise development center here and we're looking at making sure Papua New Guinean business get the opportunity to contract with large international firms, one of the things I've noticed is we don't have female representation in that listing of the supply management database that we um, have. So two things. One is that the team that runs the enterprise center here is all male, right? So they come with their perceptions on who's, you know, and it's unconscious bias. So, you know, they're used to doing what they're used to doing. So they're, Women-owned enterprises are underrepresented. So when you have a female in, in a CEO position, like that's why I'm I'm all for 
getting women to have like advanced degrees to push them into leadership because then we change the status quo and you know gender is cross-cutting so it opens up people thinking that you know we need to make opportunities equal it has to be balanced and um, also getting my team here to think about when we make choices around procurement let's pick the Papua New Guinean why over the you know foreign entity because if we don't pick the Papua New Guinean company, how are they going to grow and develop? You've got to invest in them because once we invest with them, yes, they may fall short, but that's what we're here for, to tell them you need to do this because when they build their capacity, they can go and be sustainable and get other jobs on their own. But we've got to make that conscious effort as Papua New Guineans in positions where we can make that decision. How important is it uh, for your support and encouragement of other women in the private sector? Yeah. So I mentor quite a few um, women in the private sector. And my mentoring style is not, it's not really formal. I get, because I, I feel that through my experience, the formal mentoring, sometimes, you know, it puts too much pressure on, you know, like the mentee, and to some extent, the mentor to always think about, you know, questions to ask that, you know, you feel. So it becomes a chore. So my mentoring style is more informal. Like I meet with them, sit down, we have a cup of tea or coffee, and then I get a sense of who they are so I can recommend them to join me on this association or join me in this organization. Because when they come in and join you, not only do they get time to spend with you, but you also develop a sense of who they are. I've become friends with them and I've stayed in their lives and I've helped them like to grow to or tell them when there's opportunities available. So also being aware of opportunities and and not keeping them to yourself, but think of people because, you know, I don't have time. So I'm, I'm always interacting with people so that I can sponsor them into areas of opportunity. I think that's something that we need to do better as women, but also more generally Papua New Guineans, you know, vice versa, men promoting women into areas of responsibility. And you can't do that if you don't know the person. Sometimes I feel that we don't say yes because we think um, we're not at that level. But the thing is, you have to say yes so you can scale to that level. And that's what I want more Papua New Guinean women to have is just, you know, believe in themselves, put up your hand, say yes, and then pedal like crazy underneath the water to get to where you need to get to. Yeah. And I know because somebody mentioned to me last week that they felt um, I went to a meeting. I sit on the Pacific uh, Women Lead Board for the Pacific. So I went to a regional meeting in Tonga. And one of my fellow Papua New Guineans who was on the board said to me, I don't know why I'm here. And I said, you're here because you bring a area of expertise that none of us know or have knowledge of, and that's what you're here to teach us. And she said to me, oh, I feel like an imposter. And I said, look, this is the the issue that we as women need to get out of our minds is that we're like imposters in these spaces because no, no one will appoint you unless they see the value you bring. So just believe that you're here because you bring it. And look, I'm just grateful that you are the voice that, you know, we're going to channel and hopefully, you know, 
men listen to this show, women listen to this show, and you're such an inspiration, and we're just so grateful that you made time for us, given you're so busy. Thank you. Susil, thank you so much for coming on to the show and speaking with us. Miyama Mastro. Thank you. Always happy now. I'm really happy to contribute in this space. I'm also Mitoke. It's something that I'm passionate about. And while I'm here, and I'm always happy to do this. Thank you for the opportunity. What an inspiration Susil Nelson Congo is. She has achieved so much. And as a woman from Pinji myself, I am heartened to hear her talk about creating local jobs and opportunities for people out there. This is our last episode for 2023. Thank you so much for your support this year. I always say that Sisters Let's Talk is your show, not mine. And I am forever grateful to you for listening. I also want to thank the women who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make Sisters Let's Talk happen. Our producer, Alice Matthews, our supervising producer, Kim Lester, and Falangafulu Inga Stunsna, who leads us as executive producer. And you would not be listening to me now if it wasn't for the amazing engineering team who record our interviews and make us sound so good. Thank you to Selwyn, Chrissy, Jules, Marcus, Emma, Alice, and AJ. To our sisters who have come on the show this year, it was yet another incredible year of uplifting and empowering storytelling from you all. And it's been my greatest honor to share your stories here on our show. Thank you through from the bottom of my heart. And I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Look at me again long nupla year 2024. God bless.